All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fuck nicks? What the fucksters? What the fuckinucks? Yeah, the what the fuckinucks. Why not? I'm in Canada still, so that seems appropriate. How's it going? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, broadcasting from a hotel room. But it's nice. It's not a bad hotel room. It's a, it's more of a residence-style hotel room. I think it's actually an apartment. I, you could definitely live here. I, you could live anywhere, really. I mean, and I'm in Canada. So there's reflection going on. I do want to say that uh, you know, I, I want to thank certainly the, the journalists of the world and also uh, at the entertainers of the world for being the, uh, a relatively you know, one of the only, uh, sadly, truly functional checks on, on this presidency. So that being said, I have Stephen Colbert on the show today. Stephen and I go back a bit. We don't know each other that well. I've done his show several times, but we sort of started in the same world. And, uh, you know, he has risen to the occasion for for personal reasons, for, for reasons of uh, whatever it is. You know, Stephen is one of the guys who is publicly pushing back uh, through humor, but also through anger and heart and concern and fear on a nightly basis. Uh, against uh, this sort of you know, wave of authoritarian thinking and, and single-party minority rule supporters, anti-Americans who consider themselves to be making America great again. Stephen is sort of a, uh, he's, he's, he's kind of a, a hero in the fight in a way because he's able to present information and anger in a humorous way, uh, you know, providing some comfort uh, to the, the sort of ongoing internal and cultural current of of fear and uh, apprehension and uh, not knowing what's going to happen and and keeps people from tipping off the edge because a lot of people are falling off the edge uh, mentally and in a lot of other ways because this shit is hard and it's scary and that's and that's where we're at and Stephen is one of the guys that makes it funny so I was happy to talk to him we had a, we we had a tight talk because I, I was, I had to go over to uh, to the theater, the Ed Sullivan Theater, and and pull him away from the daily grind of hosting a daily show. And he gave me about an hour. And he's a talker, and we and we, I think we did all right. So that's happening. That that you can look forward to that in a few minutes. I'm getting a lot of emails from people about uh, many things. You know, hundreds of emails about the Eve Ensor episode from uh, you know men and women. Uh, it, almost equal oddly and uh just from people who are victims parents of victims victims by proximity uh you know people who have have been destroyed from uh abuse and and domestic and sexual violence and uh just situations yeah it's just overwhelming really and uh, i've been getting a lot of emails relative to anti-semitism I've been getting emails to add to the conversation around addiction and recovery, uh, you know, just emails of, of fear, uh, you know, in, in terms of managing it. I, I didn't I had no idea that uh, my conversations would lead to lead to some sort of to help. You know, I mean, I really got into this trip to to, to try to get something going and, and I guess to engage myself and you know whatever my process has been over time 
has had an effect on people, and, and it's, uh, it's, it's humbling, and, and uh, I, I, I'm glad to help out. So I hope you're doing okay. I hope your, your life is going well, and, and you got that thing done, or you fixed that thing, or you, you got that thing looked at, or you, you, know, you, you, you got your kid into the right place, and whatever. I, I just hope. There's emails here about uh, the creeping authoritarianism that, that seems to be honestly happening in America, uh, despite... Uh, the presses or you know all of our best efforts uh, to uh, to sort of feel like there there's something we can do to engage and obviously there is but uh, but it's happening and it, it's good it, as I've kind of been trying to grow myself to to kind of really know who you are and, and who's in charge of your brain and, and how do you handle what you think and, and how and how do you facilitate some sort of change in, in yourself and in the world so the emails, I, you know, obviously I get hundreds of these and, and there's a selection process here that's kind of random, but uh, I'm trying to focus. Subject line, Fantasyland. I've been talking about that book. Mark, I grew up in the Pentecostal charismatic movements described in Fantasyland, specifically the offshoots of John Wimber's Vineyard. It was partly my upbringing in that environment that led me to some really crazy cult-like groups. After I got out of my last group about five years ago and started to get healthy, I began listening to WTF, the stories of your guests with all their ups and downs, false starts, and long droughts of non-work, usually ending in some type of success story, usually, helped keep me grounded as I began the process of rebuilding different parts of my life. Your story, too, of finding success later in life, especially after living in your own drug-fueled fantasy land, is continually encouraging, and just so you know, I'm doing well now. I love your little allusions to Fantasyland in your recent episodes, like bringing up Celebration, the Disney Town, and the Jamie Dembo interview. The book helped give me a context to my upbringing and the groups I was involved in that was incredibly insightful and healing. Listening to you and Kurt hash it out over a couple hours would be a real treat. You got to bring them on. Uh, I'll try, Paul. I'll try. But I like this idea that you bring up, Paul. I like the idea of helped give me a context to my upbringing and the groups I was involved with. See, like, I don't think I fully realize all the time that you know, sometimes just a little bit of personal experience shared or a little bit of information can completely change the way you see or, or contextualize something in, in both positive and negative ways, you know, depending on your emotional disposition at that moment right, or who you are. But, but there is a power to conversation. There is a power to, to sort of experience. And, and there is a power to sort of educating yourself around these things to give context because there's one thing that's lacking in the goddamn culture right now in the world is context. It's just an onslaught of fucking mostly garbage being dumped into our heads on a daily fucking basis that either we attach to our feelings or we just get overwhelmed and panicky. But getting personal context for who the fuck you are and, and, and really you know owning that so if the shit really goes down, at least you'll have that. At least you'll know who you are. Anyways, a little bit dramatic, but, uh, but I appreciated the ideas in that email. And then there was this one, because, you know, anti-Semitism, like, again, it's, it's part of fanatic religiosity, anti-Semitism, complete utter racism, uh, you know, flat out authoritarian tactics of corralling and torturing and uh, exiling and, and who knows what's next, uh, minority people marginalizing of people already marginalized is a real thing. So when I talk about being a Jew or I talk about, uh, you know, anti-Semitism and even one email comes to me, you, you know, I, I'm going to react. But this was sort of this is why it's important you know, outside of you know, the general reasons. I get an email, Jamie Denbo and the overwhelming Judaism. 
Hey, Mark, I've been listening to WTF since I saw the second season of Marin on Netflix, however many beers ago that was. I just listened to the Jamie Dembo interview, and I'd like to address that other listener who was in denial about being anti-Semitic. Fuck that guy. Keep on talking about all the Jewy stuff. I'm a rare Vermont Jew currently living in a no-Jew town in North Idaho. Some days it feels like your angst, self-loathing, and chats with other Jews are the only ways I can relate to society. The idea of performing activities in life without worrying about how it's going to affect my entry to heaven is completely foreign to all my neighbors. Your podcast reminds me of all the worst parts of growing up Jewish and sometimes even makes me reminisce about the good parts, although I'm pretty sure that being Jewish means that you're supposed to love hating all of it. That was him in parentheses. Your talk with Jamie reminded me of all the great friendships I made and promptly abandoned in Jewish camps and Hebrew school reminded me of all the horrible videos that I was subjected to about the Holocaust and that there isn't a time in life where I haven't been worried about every last thing that could maim or kill me, both in thanks to my mother's extreme worries about me and my siblings. You also remind me that we are the people who have had to figure it out on our own away from the rest of society. And this mentality is something I carry with me daily. If we could wander through through the desert for 40 years, survive the Holocaust, survive the diaspora, and survive every other challenge the rest of the world throws at our people, I can muster the strength to open the sticky jar of jelly in my refrigerator to spread our leftover matzah after Pesach. Anyways, I know that you're going to do your thing regardless of what I say, but don't stop talking about Jewish life. Anyone who doesn't want to hear it probably already knows where the fast forward button is on their device. Wish you good mental health. Best of luck to the cats, Brendan. Thanks, man. I, you know, and, and I do that. I think I do what you're saying instinctively, but there was a couple. And then, then I got this, this other one, but, and this is another thing that we don't realize about the Jamie Dembo interview, growing pain subject line. Hey, Mark, just a little note on growing up with the awareness for second world war atrocities. German here growing up in the eighties in Germany, we were confronted with the facts quite early as well. I think around eight or nine years old, we read the first book about it in school. And from there, it's basically a nonstop guilt trip until graduating high school. And for the better, don't get me wrong, never forget so it doesn't happen again, is burned into me. And I think that's a good thing. I immediately related to Jamie mentioning how early you guys had to deal. And it reminded me of my own very specific German guilt education. Anyway, love your work. Keep your head up. Kind regards and hello from Amsterdam, Lucy. See, I didn't know that. Like, I, I didn't know, like, I mean, obviously I knew that, you know, Germans ha- had to reckon with it, but I, I didn't know it was like, you know, kind of a promoted and persistent kind of uh, driving awareness into the brain of new generations. And the reason this stuff is important because is that, you know, progressive sense or that human sense of, of right and wrong in relation to history is, is starting to buckle, starting to buckle. And this one, I think, is nice because it's Canadian and it's kind of funny. And then we'll, you know, get to Stephen here in a minute. Uh, The subject line on this is just um, Montreal Jews. Hey, Mark, in the Jamie Dembo episode, which is great, of course, I was stunned. That was him in parentheses. I was stunned to hear you refer to Howie Mandel as a Montreal Jew. He's a Toronto Jew. Leonard Cohen. Now that's a Montreal Jew. Love the show. Keep up the great work. Best, Trevor. <laughs> okay, I, I will not make that mistake again, Trevor. Leonard Cohen, Montreal Jew. Howie Mandel, Toronto Jew. Stephen Colbert. I talked to Stephen, as I said, in, his, uh, in, in the tucked away place in the Ed Sullivan Theater that used to be a, a small theater that Letterman used to use to screen things. 
and we had a very you know engaged and uh you, you know kind of uh, intense and fast uh talk you know steven will go man steven will go so i want you to listen to this enjoy it uh, obviously the late show with stephen colbert airs weeknights on cbs and on cbs all access and this is me talking to stephen colbert <laughs> This was Dave's screening room. Yeah, they. Uh, uh, yeah, I what, you got what, the whole history of it. Not quite. What What do you think went on in here? Is this this was screening? There used to be a like a hundred thousand dollar projector behind that, and and this was the, these risers had like they were like comfy seats like this here and yeah. there, and and that's a screen right over there. And so it would be actually projected. I think both film and digital. So really that nice. was a nice thing. It wasn't a... Oh, weird... really? No, it was really a nice thing. It was a great way to watch a movie. Do you know, like, as you've been here, uh, as long as you have, do you, are you have you become uh, obsessed with the history of the place? Uh, or is it just for you? Surely before the show started. More, yeah. Because now then once you're there, yeah. as much as it's great to be in the Ed Sullivan Theater, yeah. at a certain point, it's just, just a place you're working. I know, and right? It, because you don't see it from the outside. No. I don't even. I don't see the marquee. I never come in that side of the building. Right. I don't get any sense of the space at all. It's, Isn't that sad? Well, the, <laughs> I suppose so. The one thing that reminds me. Thank you. The one thing that reminds me is um, that damn dome in that theater. It's so beautiful. Oh yeah. Like the actual the actual space yeah. itself is so lovely. Yeah. But of course, then when you end up doing the show, when you actually walk out on stage to do the show, yeah. it's you want to stay aware of the audience and the right. vibe and everything, but it's you and the camera. Sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, 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 I don't, I've never gotten the hang of that. What do you mean? Well, I mean, when I go out on stage, it's very hard for me to, to acknowledge that I'm just really performing for the camera. Like, if, you, if I'm performing stand-up and there's a camera, generally I'm looking at the audience. Every time I've done panel on your show yeah. or on Conan's show, I will yeah. always go to the audience. Like, I'll look at them, and I'll do one of these, and then I'm not even looking at the camera, and I'm playing for the audience. <laughs> well, yeah. It's a trick. It's, you had to learn it. Well, it's a fine line. It's a fine line. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you're getting all your vibe from right. the audience, yeah. you know? And so you can't, you always have to be aware of them, yeah. because you guys are in this sort of little partnership yeah. for this next hour. Um, but, yeah, it's all going down the pipe. Yeah, so you how- gotta, You gotta see where the- What do you, have you, we're, like- Are we doing, is this the show, by the way? Probably. So is it I like it. I like we really that's really the thin end of the wedge. Really literally as I'm sitting in the like roll, roll. No, I'll like, never even know. I'll get him to say shit he'll regret how, for years. How did you even uh, but I'm doing it on your equipment. Oh. Of course oh. we're rolling. The guys left. <laughs> they left. I guess we are rolling. That's but, good. Yeah, are you dear I was wondering when I was walking over here waiting outside with my bag. Usually I have my my recorder in my bag, but they offered to set this up for me. Sure. Do you ever get to that point? And I didn't feel this way about you where you're like, oh Christ, how much longer do we, <laughs> do we work? Oh, do, like work like, in general just, or you, work with each other? No, just in general. Like, just, oh. like, you know, just kind of like, oh, here we oh, go. Oh, when I, when I was, uh, I was uh, actually, I was just having this conversation with Mindy Kaling actually. And really? I interviewed her yeah. for, uh, on Saturday for the Montclair Film Festival. And she asked me like, how much longer are you going to do this? Yeah. And I'll tell you the story I told her, which is that I- Great, I love the stories that you've repeated. Could no, you but it? I never finished it with her. Oh, is, good. Is that I, when I was thinking about ending the Colbert Rapport, which was about seven years in. Yeah. Well, I did it for nine and a half years, but, but seven years in. Uh, I've gotten to know Dick Cavett over the years. Have you ever talked to Dick at I all? haven't interviewed him, but I've talked to him before. Yeah. 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 Great, 
all the best stories you want to sure. hear. And his, his about, brain is like about, a like a, 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 a bingo cage. You just yeah you, you mention a name just, and he'll pull out like a number he, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Just zzz, you're spinning a old yeah, Rolodex yeah, and just, just throw, boom throw a name drop your out, finger yeah, anywhere he wants yeah. and he'll tell you about like you know Brando told sure. him how why to always order a tequila sunrise right I don't know yeah and. It's actually Campari and orange juice is the is the brand. Is that the thing? Yeah. My mom used to drink Campari and soda. It was a hip drink for a while sure. in the 70s, Campari. So I asked him, we went yeah. out to, we have drinks every so often. And we're-, we're <laughs> is, it, is it a club for- At the Yale Club. Okay. Yeah, because he's a Yaley. You're so, a Yaley? No, he's a Yaley. <laughs> So my, you, my dad taught there. My brother went there. Right. And my daughter went there. And I'm jealous of all of them because I always- But they let you in? Your grandfathered in? Only if I'm in with someone else. I really? Don't, I don't know. I don't know how it works. Your I've kid never, can't put you on the I've, list? I don't think so. I have never been in <laughs> without a Yaley. So yeah. I don't know if they take a cheek scraping and see whether it comes up right. Ivy. Right. But I said, hey, how long did you do your show? Yeah. The first time. And he said- Okay, and he yeah. knew immediately what I was asking. Hey, so I didn't know. I, when, yeah. when can I stop? Exactly. <laughs> and he said he because he, he did his show so many times. He right. did so many different iterations on a different network. Right. And he said to me that he goes, "How long do you think Jack Parr was on the air?" And I'll ask you, "How long do you think Jack Parr was on the air?" Uh, Twelve years. Four years. But he's mythologized. Yes, Jack right. Parr was on for four years. That's it. Well, he came on back the with Tonight the, Show. He came back with the Jack Parr show later because, okay. and and Cavett wrote for Jack. Um, I, I call him Jack. Yeah. And uh, and he said that uh, Parr regretted it. He regretted having le- left after four years. That there was I don't a think lot he... more chicken on that. He, he, I think, I don't know if it was the grind or the demands of the network or whatever, but after four years he left and then he regretted it and came back with Jack Parr show, which was a good show, but just was never the same. I don't think people knew then that you could stay on the air for 40 years. I mean, you know, television was pretty, still kind of newish. No, I mean, if you watch the American Masters on Johnny Carson... Evidently, the story that they tell in American Masters yeah. is that Johnny said, I can't take over for Jack Parr. Who can take over for Jack Parr? Yeah. I mean, he's been there for four years. Four years. Exactly. There's no way to take over for Jack Parr. He's a giant. No one will ever. And his wife, one of the Joan or Joannes, said, yeah. like, don't give the job to somebody else. Let me talk to him. Like, she put on a dress and went to the head of the network and said, I'll make him take the job. And he took yeah. it. So how much longer? I don't know. I, I enjoy it. Yeah. I enjoy it. Like, and that's how long Did you're supposed you, to do it, right? Well, I guess my- Technically, my, you're supposed to do it until you don't enjoy it anymore. The, only only a few more years after you don't enjoy it, right? I guess, but I don't like, I, I'm not a guy that really understands when he's enjoying something. So I-, I Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I like having the gig and I like being engaged uh, and doing a thing. Like, I like talking to people and I like getting on stage. But when I really think about it, am I like, ah, I can't wait to get out there. I, I don't know. I, I really don't know how often that happens. I kind of want to get out there. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I I kind of want to get out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we, we you know we worked on these jokes. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. I want to see if these work. Yeah. yeah let's go. I mean, <laughs> we we spent the day working on this exactly. thing. Exactly. And for me, and that guy's coming. So it'd be nice to talk to that guy. Sure. Yeah. And I want to warm up the audience for my guest. Do you? No. No. <laughs> I want the audience warmed up for me. <laughs> then the guest's gonna have what's left. Um. No. But for me, actually, and uh. I want to go out there to be in front of the audience, yeah, and to be really to be with them, yeah. Because I don't, because I, we're constantly being told that we're crazy for thinking something's crazy these days, right? Like there's there's a group of Americans who think this is crazy and wonder whether they're crazy for thinking it's crazy, and I think that's who that my audience is, is that they 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 
they like the community of knowing that I'm coming out there and saying, you're not crazy. This is crazy. Well, that's become, and I right. want that. I want that as the host. But that's like, but that, that became the mission, you know, after a certain point. Well, I, I, mean, like, I oh, immediately it was the mission. Right. Like, I, I, it took me a while to express it and to know it to myself that that's what it was. But it, it was immediately the visceral emotional feeling I had to be with the audience um, the closer and closer we got to the election. Yeah, I, but at the beginning, like, I guess my question to start with is that, like, I mean, I don't know, when, I, when you first got the gig, and I don't remember when I exactly did your show, and we have a bit of history that we should talk about, but I don't Do know that, yeah, a little bit. We have a history? I, a brief. We did, We actually talked about it on your show a little bit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we, yeah, we've, I've, yeah, we've worked in the same building next go. to each there other sure, in the sure. office. Sure. But it's a weird job. It's a very specific job that you ended up with. Yes. And and it was something I think you were prepared for on, you know, on a certain level. Maybe. But, but you know, I don't know that you ever saw yourself doing that. Never. That you this were. This was not an ambition of mine. What was the Regard, ambition? Regardless of what anybody thinks. Yeah. That, like. I was laying in wait for one of the network guys to I don't leave. think, I never felt I like never, you were that. People wrote stuff like that, but like, you know, it, it, Steve Colbert cleverly arranged his Comedy Central contract, so it would be up when Dave's was up. There was stuff like the that. The speculators. Was yeah, yeah. You know, you, when you look at the news every day, it's, it, it's very important that you realize just how much it's speculation by people that kind of know things. There's like, the actual news <laughs> is the news. And then there's thousands of people going like, what if, maybe this happened, I think this happened. One of my producers, Barry Julian, yeah. calls it the uninformed influencing each other in real time that's what most news is <laughs> but but i i guess the the but what did you see what was the goal because it might uh, the goals i mean i i really should have more goals probably but, but I, mean, I didn't have a i didn't really have necessarily a goal the big the biggest sort of change for me that there have been only a couple of big career changes for me was my original goal was to be hamlet yeah, you know, not even like act Real Hamlet act. to be Hamlet oh, to actually be Hamlet. Well, I mean, I don't know. I, was, I yeah. as a young actor, sure. I did yeah. not have the experience to know that you could differentiate yourself between like your 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 narrative heroes and yourself. You wanted you know? to just become them. I you're, sure you're, I just wanted to like be actively sad at people because I was a sad, sad young man. And then I met people in comedy. Yeah. And I started doing it. And I went, oh, the, A, you know when it's working because the audience makes that noise. That's yeah. always fun. Yeah. And I, I, comedy sort of saved my life as a young man, like the comedians that I admired. Um, and sort of they, they, they got me through childhood tragedy and such. And, and then I realized I just loved improvisation. And so I, le I remember actively going, okay, I'm not going to do straight theater. Right. Because whenever... I get paid to do comedy. They like straight theater. I tend to be doing it for free. So this was an evolution. So the improv oh. thing, but let's, I mean, if we go back then, you, like I know you're Catholic. I know you have a huge family. Yes. So when you go back, when you talk about like, where, where'd you grow up? Well, I was born in Washington, DC, but I left there when I was four and I spent the rest of my uh, childhood in uh, South Carolina, first on James Island, South Carolina, and then in uh, Charleston, with, South an, with a, a, a tremendous amount of children. There was a lot of kids. Eleven kids: Jimmy, Eddie, Mary, Billy, Margaret, Tom, and Jay, Lulu, Paul, Peter, and Stephen. So you know all of them. I know most of them pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> and big family. It's, it's a big family. Well, yeah, but that's to me that's crazy. I can't even imagine it. And so what, you have brothers and sisters? I have one, Which and one? it's enough. I have a brother. I have a younger brother. Okay. So you're the responsible one. I get uh, kind of. Oh. I mean, not really. I mean, yeah. it, it it went back and forth, but it turns okay. out I ended up there somehow. Okay. But uh, but but growing up, when you say uh, like I I 
I, there's there's some questions I, I want to ask about you know uh, faith and about family. Sure. But uh, when you say that it, it saved that comedy saved you from tragedy, it was because you you lost family, right? Right. My father and two of my brothers died in a plane crash, Eastern Airlines Flight Two Twelve, on September eleventh, nineteen seventy four, and so it didn't it didn't save me from tragedy, but it 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 gave the me, sadness. It gave me surcease from sadness, you know, uh, at the end of the day. And I would listen to Bill Cosby wonderfulness. Yeah. And Bear, Bill Cosby very funny fellow right. Yeah. Which is, uh, that's, sure. that's the Noah one. And then wonderfulness has got go-karts on it. Back when we could listen to Bill Cosby. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And that and then after that. On uh, records. Who on had, records. Who had albums. the records? Did your parents have the records? No, one of my one of my brothers. How old's your oldest brother? Oh, he's almost, he's 19 years older than I am. So he's in his 70s now. So when something like that happens in a family of that size, I, I imagine that there's a, a lot of built-in support automatically. Well, yes, we love each other very much, but yeah. we're kind of scattered, you know. After... No, but I mean like when that happened. When the tragedy happened, you were all kind of around, weren't you? We were all together. Yeah. You know, we were all together. I mean, it was a strange transition time in our, in our family. And this is a slightly longer, it, there's no short answer to your question. That's okay. Because, you know. You don't have a show to do, in, do you? Uh, no, I don't. I don't. <laughs> September 10th. Yeah. You know, you might say like, like September 10th, 1974. Yeah. It was me and mom and dad and Peter and Paul and uh, Jay and Lulu and Tommy and Bill. Yeah. So like nine people in the house. Right. You know. Yeah. And then, but uh, Lulu, Jay, and Tommy go off to college. Yeah. Because you know, in September, uh, Bill goes off, uh, I think Bill go off to law school or he moved out for sure. Um, Peter, Paul, and. Uh, dad die and suddenly it's just me and mom uh, in the house it's yeah. like people were around and people like sure. came back because of the because of how this terrible tragedy yeah. affected our entire family but really for the next you know x number of years it went from this enormous busy joyously kind of chaotic it's okay if things aren't perfect kind of family right to me and mom yeah and it became very quiet and the shades were all down and you know there mom was always wearing black and uh, and it was it was a totally different daily communicants you know like going to mass every day you know looking for faith to get you through this uh bewildering level of tragedy and loss Greece, yeah, you know, yeah completely disorienting yeah in many ways and feels unreal and hyper real at the same time and so was there a lot of support yes we were all there for each other right but i being the youngest and the middle two the, the ones between me and the next ones up dying yeah and the, the other ones were old enough that they were they Gone had their lives. They had yeah. college, or right. they were married and children. So it was a dramatic. That fall was a dramatic change in what my life was like, or in our, of course, our entire family's life was like. But in terms of me, of how many family were around, it became just me and mom. Uh, and and when you look back on it, in terms of I don't know how much introspection you do outside of, you know. <laughs> I try not to th look in the mirror. Yeah, you know, I try to sh I try to shave <laughs> against just a corkboard. <laughs> See what happens. Let someone tell me if if I miss something. Right. Sure. No, but do you uh, like? Do you see that? Uh, like how? Like that moment is in in terms of how it defined the rest of your life. Sure. Yeah. That was you know, that was my secret name. Mm. Was September 11th. Mm -hmm. That was the secret name I wouldn't tell anybody. Yeah. And I even said that 
you know, like to, I remember coming to the realization that my secret name was September. What does 11th. that mean, secret name? Well, there's the name that you tell everyone else, and then there's the uh, name by which you can be conjured. Yeah, if you're a demon. Okay, I do you get know what it. I mean? Sure. That is my secret name. You know, you tell someone, don't tell me your secret name, or else they have control over you. And then it became a global, you know. Tragedy. Well, that was very strange after after nine eleven, yeah. as opposed to September eleventh in my mind. Yeah. When nine eleven happened, um, suddenly that became a a totemic day of tragedy for people all over the world, yeah. not even just in the United States, but of course very specifically. And I and I you know, I I was I watched it live in from the Helix, you know, nine eleven, yeah. you know, watching the towers yeah. and 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 when I come when I I remember seeing billboards after that that would say, you know, September eleventh, never forget. Yeah. Which is totally understandable and I, I understand that. But I remember thinking personally going, really never. Yeah. Because that means something different to me. It does, really right? Really never. Yeah. Never, I just don't like I really want to forget, but do I have to carry that with me all the time? Yeah. Because, you know, when you get struck with great tragedy, the absolute natural life-affirming and life-saving inclination is to scab over that. Sure. You know, yeah. with whatever, you know. And time usually does it. If time you does it. keep and, reopening and, it. And so does comedy. Yeah. You know, some of us comedy. I, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. I, I hid from him under running laughter, which is the hound of heaven. You know that poem? By who? Gerard Manley Hopkins. I'm not sure who it is, but it's the hound of heaven. It's, it's basically, nice. It's, it's, it's about God pursuing you oh. with the truth and with love. And 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 how you flee 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 because you don't want to know, you don't want to know that that you are loved. You don't want to know. Is that true? Um, it's hard to. I think it's hard to be fully known. Yeah. Uh, you know. As, yeah. As Saint Paul says, then I, be, then, then I will be known, uh, known as fully as then I will know as fully as I am known because God knows you fully, and that's a hard thing to surrender to is to be fully known. It's terrifying to me well, because that, then you have to if you know that someone else knows you fully. Say say for those of you who are listening, if if yeah. there is a God, and I right. know that for many people that makes no sense, but right. but if there is a God and He fully knows you, but that's an interesting. Um, that's an interesting accusation that someone else fully knows you. Right. Because the question is, do I fully know me? Shouldn't I? And then you that that's a that's an invitation to self-examination. Right. You know. And but that but that's sort of the core of faith in a way. That if you allow yourself to be fully known by God, then the rest is is sort of uh, you know, I I can only do my best. I suppose so. It's a it's humility. It's yeah. an act of humility. Well, that's a good question in terms of when I you know coming back around and then we can fill in the gaps is that I felt that you know when you do when you were doing the Colbert Report and then you know you take this job, part of this job that you have now on some level is allowing a, a, a weird sliver of, of yourself to be fully known mm -hmm. in a way that is accessible and 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 authentic maybe not all of you but you know that that part has got to resonate sure so that must have i i thought been an amazing challenge oh a, a huge one a huge one like the one that i i couldn't possibly prepare for right and, because and, i if somebody i was i was at a an event the other night and someone said oh do you act yeah and i said <laughs> Oh, until four years ago, that's all I did. Yeah. You know, I'm 54 years old and from age 22, whenever I, you know, got out of theater yeah. school till 50, I was an actor. And the, the Colbert Report was a 10 year 
sketch. Yeah. It was a tender right. scene. It had a yeah. beginning, a middle, and end. Yeah. And it had, it, I had a character want. I either achieved it, I didn't. My scene partner was the audience. Or, or yeah. I never thought of it doing it alone. Right. I was doing a scene with someone. Yeah. Right. Trying to convince them. And right. Make, and, and also have them love me. Yeah. What does anybody want? What does any character want in any play or anything? Love me. Right. And so that was the whole objective. Was like, Please love me. And so it's strange for me now to be myself. I even said to James Babydoll Dixon, um, the real king of late night, uh, who you know, represents me and John and Kimmel. Yeah, and, yeah. And I said, because he said, um, th- it's you. Yeah. Because it was like, who is going to be? And they said, yeah. they want to talk to you about it. Yeah. And I said, James, A, I said, I, I, the last thing I thought I would do next is yeah. something harder. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, when does this get easier? And he goes, no, no, it's going to be easier. I said, I don't believe you. And I was right, by the way. It's much harder. It's much harder. It's because... much harder. But but the other thing I said was like, James, this will be the first time I haven't been an actor. Like, you don't understand. Like, that's not me on the Colbert Report. That's a, that's me acting, using the character as a confession, right. in a way, yeah. of some of my darkest impulses as a human being. But right. I don't even think even necessarily my dark impulses, just human dark impulses. Sure. You know, right. I want to be the most important one. I want the only person. Like, I want every all the praise just a malignant ego exactly yeah and and to have that reinforced and have the audience cheer on me embodying their appetites right you know that was that's why they would like they i'd have a guest on that they agreed with but they would cheer me when i would knock the person's ideas down right through this through this embodiment of appetites and and now you and now you had to be put in a position to figure out who you are what your timing is yes you know am i funny in that way yeah. as me steven right and what and, do i care about yeah because you got to talk about things every night and you can't really fake it you have to kind of care when did the battle stop being sadness what do you mean in yourself I mean, like, you know, when you when you come out of what you came out of and you're, you know, you're using, uh, you know, listening to comedy, you're, you're using faith to sort of like, I, I'm, I guess, uh, you oh, know, it's when always, you... I mean, what do you mean? When did it stop being sadness? <laughs> okay. Yeah, the battle's always sadness. Yeah, yeah. Oh, battle's always sadness. You know, yeah. you know, it frightens me the awful truth of how sweet life can be. How, me too. Yeah. It's, it, it, and the cause... preciousness and the fleetingness of life. Having lost those people in my life when I was young. Um, makes everything seem fleeting to me, you know. The still, oh, so that stays with oh, you. Oh, absolutely. There's a poem by a guy. There's a, I believe he was, he's got an Italian name, but I think he's Swiss, mm-hmm. and his name was Romano Gardini, and Romano Gardini is a a Catholic writer, yeah. a philosopher, and maybe maybe a clergyman. I can't remember. And he's got this great player a prayer about the fullness of eternity and about how in the dawn we perceive the dusk. Yeah, we know it's coming. Yeah. So it's I constantly do the math. Right. Of like how long will this beautiful moment last? So right. There's always that. It's it's suffused through. Yeah. All of my joy. Yeah. Is how long will this last? But you're capable of experiencing joy. Without a doubt. Oh, oh that's constantly. Great. Oh, that's so all good. the time. But oh. it's not alone. It's not like unalloyed. Yeah. It's not unalloyed. It's it's I'm definitely got some tin in my iron. But it makes steel. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. That's nice. No, but I joy all the time. Joy with my family, joy with my friends that I do the show with. Yeah. For the beauty of the earth, you know. Yeah. But, you know, 
but for the little green leaf and the wind on the water, like I, I, I the, the joy of creation, how strange it is to be anything at all. I get yeah. that feeling all the time. That's great. So th- when you when you were younger then, and, and this thing happens, and you start going to church, does that when start? The- no, no, I was already like our family was already very devout, right? Yeah. right but was but it, it ramped up definitely, right? Because it was in. Is that when it kind of infused in you the deeper understanding? Oh, I, uh, hmm, no, because it seems like you're fairly the deeper understanding didn't come till I was older you know i had some sort of i had what what for me passed for fairly profound revelations when i was when i was old when i was older was in my 20s oh yeah about yeah because i became an atheist for many years I, I i left i left quite quite sadly about it i, di- I didn't want to not have a god yeah um but I mean, if, d- if for no other reason that i really wanted to see my father and my brothers again you know which is the most uh most understandable but in some ways, kind of most selfish reason to have a god. Yeah, you know. But right. uh, but, they, but, but that was real. That was a promise right. that was given to me but, that I will see them again. Right. And the fact that I was sure that there was no god for many years, four is many. Yeah. Uh, sent me into a terrible spiral of depression. I lost fifty pounds. I you lost fifty pounds. I lost fifty pounds. You, like in did six you months. need to lose fifty pounds? No, it was exactly. I mean, I weigh exactly. When I went to college, I weigh exactly what I weigh right now. And you lost 50 in college? 50 pounds less than I do now, my freshman year. By, almost by Christmas. I mean, I lost so, because I wouldn't eat. I so was you so went into a tailspin. Went a complete tailspin, exactly. Ugh, because well, God left. And un, unaddressed grief that that mm. when he left, there was an unaddressed And then grief. also you're like in a new place, new people. Sure. Like you're away for the, sure. yeah. My, 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 I, think, I think my mother did a fantastic job of being um, not bitter and being helping me try to see uh, beauty in the world after after the dad and the boys died, but without a doubt, um, uh, there was a um, subterranean hum all the time of me wanting to be okay for her. Yeah, and I didn't have to do that. Yeah, and and I found out I completely was not okay. Right, you know, ten years, eight years later, I was completely not okay. So, um, so how did it start the acting thing? How did it start, uh, you know, kind of manifesting oh. you? Like, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I mean, part of it was sort of inspired by my mom. She'd wanted to be an actress, yeah, and uh, she had actually studied at the New School, uh, the New School for Social Research. Sure. They called it the New School here yeah. in the nineteen uh, late thirties, yeah. and early forties, and she. Um, was going to Carnegie Mellon, uh, Carnegie Mellon, to the Carnegie Institute yeah. uh, to study theater, and uh, got terribly sick. Actually, got like a literally went on a a a tour with her mother of the Caribbean on a yacht or something like yeah. that or a cruise ship, and got a rare tropical disease, like a caricature of a rare tropical disease in Haiti, and nearly died. Huh. Like uh, absolutely was at death's door for months and months and months and months, and couldn't go off to school as a result, and. In her recovery period, my father said, will you marry me? And wow. so they got married and had 11 children rather than going off to be an actress as she'd wanted to be. And so on a certain level, though not consciously, I mean, we never discussed it and I never said it to myself, I was doing it inspired by, and I have to imagine in some ways for her. Yeah. Though though I wanted it myself. And, and before any of that, I really wanted to be a comedian. Really? But I didn't know what that meant. Yeah. But like literally, like... Cosby, yeah, Carlin, yeah, Steve Martin, sure, they were everything, and David Fry. Those those were my everything. Those guys, and, and we're the same age. What are you? 
I'm 54. I'm 55. So yeah, yeah I'll be so 55 those are, soon. Yeah. So that's the the records you had. Those are the records exactly. Yeah. When yeah. you're like in seventh grade. Right. Yeah. 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 And and um, who's the guy who did Nixon? I mean, who did uh Kennedy? Van. Yeah. Not he Van did, Heflin. No, he just not, died not too long ago. Yeah, uh, he did. Yeah. His career. Van Meter. Van Vaughn Meter. Vaughn Meter. Yeah. Yeah. Vaughn. We had the Vaughn Meter albums too. Oh yeah. So anyway, I just wore those out, and I kind of secretly wanted to do that. I remember I confessed to a neighbor of mine a girl named tinker hallam who lived around the corner good from name me. great name yeah. very nice person and tinker she was like well, what do you want to be and i said well i i want to be a comedian she goes oh you'd be very funny as a comedian i didn't know what do you do how old were you like 10 no 11? that's that's teens oh, yeah. teens. that's like i'm like 15 and but what, i didn't know what that meant and how what, do you become a comedian sure what, what is what does that mean? I, I said the same thing and then one day you find out like years <laughs> later there's no way to know. Right. Yeah, at that age. Well, what were you doing to occupy your time as a high school kid? What playing you... a lot of Dungeons and Dragons. So you you were really, you know, dug into the fantasy trip. Yeah, sure. Start off with science fiction first. But though. not a rock and roll guy. You weren't out partying. You were No, like... I did that like shortly thereafter. I mean, there was a period of time in my late teens. I mean, my late my junior year, one of my friends introduced me to a friend of his. I, yeah. was, I was kind of a social outcast in my school. Because of your nerdness? Yeah, kind of my nerdness. I was very, I was withdrawn. Withdrawn and, and sad? Yeah, I was dark. drawn and sad yeah. and dark and yeah. nothing made any sense to me. But you and, didn't, did you uh, Did you accessorize that or were you just sort of? No, I, you weren't you proudly. Did, you did not accessorize that at Porter Goud School. <laughs> There's no, you, you, you had to wear an outfit? Uh, there was a loose. I mean, yeah, it was. It was like basically. It wasn't official, but you you had to wear a blazer and a tie. Oh, so you and couldn't be proudly sad and dark. No, and, I was not wearing yeah. a t shirt held together by safety pins or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was no accessorizing the sadness. No, no, no. So it was like you know regimental striped ties and blue blazers and Oxford button down shirts and khaki pants and oh, that makes me nervous. And dark sides. What? That the uh, the screen just went away. Where they're recording? Is that oh, I just? Think, a, I think he just. I think he just went to sleep. It's just a screensaver. Yeah, I think it's just a screensaver. We'll find out. Oh, okay. Should I get the guys in here to check it? No, it's fine. Hey, everything all right over there? Oh, screensaver. What did I say? I know you were right. Steve. Why are you Even panicking? Because, like, you know, it's one of those things where you know, <laughs> I've lost a couple. I lost two Have Hodgmans. You? Two Hodgmans? Yeah. Wow. Two in a row. Are we still good? Two different right. Hodgmans? Two different Hodgmans for different reasons. It's only, and I've done a thousand or more of these things, but there was a couple of times. Can you imagine right. if you'd lost your Obama? Oh, no, we were backed up three times for that. Sure. Three times. Sure. They were recording it. Yeah, there's no backup for this. The way, no, this is it, buddy. This is on a wire recorder. So you're, you're D&D, outcast. Yeah, sure. Weird kid. There's exactly. Steven. Well, how exactly. do we handle him? Yeah, then I am smoking a lot of weed. Yeah? They end up smoking a lot of weed, yeah. And uh, and doing and sorry, re reading sci-fi, no. The, then I moved into a different crowd because mm. then then I was with uh, the group that uh, was called the Foggy Five. Mm. Then we were you know getting foggy together. Oh, that and you had a that was yeah. a secret club. That was the Foggy Five. The Foggy Five. So yeah. people knew you was that, but still I kind of so, yeah. still kind of outcasty. Well, a different kind because yeah. it you know we self-imposed kind of outcasty oh, yeah. at that yeah. point like that now you found we found this really nice little you know clutch of friends yeah who all of us were damaged in our own own ways sure. like these were broken homes yeah. or also dead brothers and sisters and oh, fathers yeah. and it was a nice little group of damaged people which i just love the damaged sure. which is everybody yeah but yeah. um 
And so yeah, that you, was that you was were like, heading for comedy. Early, you, you were on your way. Yeah, and then actually, what we would do is we would. I would tell. I would. I got known for telling stories. Mm. Is that we would get all baked, and then I would take someone into like a closet, close the door, and I would tell them a story. Yeah, of like a a a a fantasy adventure they would go on. Yeah. Like they'd fly through space and go into the water and ride dolphins and stuff like that. And Peter and, and people would say, "Oh, go me next, me next." And I would tell them a new story. So that was the thing, Steve. Yeah, I would get like a, like a, like three. It would be like me and Chip and Russell and Tom, and I would cram them onto a small closet. And I go, "You're floating in space <laughs> as you put your arms around yourself to hug yourself. It torques you into a spin." And the stars wheel around you into a blur until one of them settles into view and grows larger and you're plunging toward the sun. And like I would do these sort of, you know, audio adventures yeah. for them. Yeah. And that was my first sort of like, oh, I bet I could tell people stories. I bet that would be fun. So I started doing a lot of that. Uh-huh. And, and and then I started, then I started experimenting with lying a lot. Yeah. But not In lying. In real life. Lying, like if somebody didn't know me, I would always lie what my bio was. I liked making up who I was a lot. Yeah. Constantly. Yeah. And even for years, even when I became a professional, I lied in all my bios. Yeah. None of them were really. Was there a relief to it? Is that what it was? Or just just, fun? It was just fun. I just loved the fantasy. But it wasn't because, like, I'm not good enough or I know. You just kind of like fucking with people. Yeah. I just like taking them on a little mental adventure, you know? Because I loved it so much. I got so much out of it by reading science fiction or fantasy that I would create these little scenarios for other people because, you know, go with what you know. And I spent all my time either playing Dungeons and Dragons, reading science fiction, or reading fantasy. I mean, all my time. If I had put half of the time into my schoolwork, I, I would have, I would have gone to Yale. But yeah. of course I didn't. I played Dungeons and Dragons and read Larry Niven and, and, and Isaac Asimov and Else Bragg de Camp and, and Robert Heinlein and Henry Kuttner and Sam Kornbluth and all deep cut like yeah. Jack Vance and people like that. What, what did you, what did you, in, in looking back on it, what did you get out of all that? Did you, was it just enjoyment pretty, pretty or just a pretty good broad education. I would think so. A pretty good broad education because I read, I, I'm on, on pace, on yeah. pace, you know, a book a day. And wow. so th- because science fiction writers tend to be um certainly somebody like Asimov, yeah. polymaths sure. and generalists yeah. and 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 sort of professionally curious. Um you'd learn a lot of things incidentally. The things I could not bullshit my way through from all this general knowledge I was getting from reading tons of science fiction. You can't bullshit math. Yeah. I and know you that can't yeah. bullshit French. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which is like math, like the declinations yeah. and all that. It's like doing well, I math. Do, I've just started doing a joke on stage recently because I, I, I used to say you can't charm your way through math. <laughs> 100%. Everything else. 100%. I, I was charming my way. Yeah. I wrote pretty good essays yeah. and stuff right. like that so I could get history yeah. class, sure. English, sure. excuse me, history class or English class or something and they like, like your, that. And they like your moxie. They like your spunk and they like your- A little bit. English. A little bit. I had an opinion in history class. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I did not shut up. I actually engaged in those classes. Well, I, I do this line on stage now where I say, you know, if your job doesn't involve math, you're bullshitting on some level. That's nice. That's nice. Well, yeah. I mean, that's why the best sports are the ones that don't have judges. Oh, yeah. The ones are like, did you run faster than the other person? Right, right, you yeah. win. <laughs> right, did you right. jump higher? 
you win. Right. That's math. Yeah. Everything else is bullshit. Yeah. Beautiful. And yeah. I'm not saying it shouldn't be in the Olympics, but there should be this asterisk <laughs> next to every like, yeah, you won. I mean, it's bullshit, but you won. Do you Good still, for you. Are you happy about yeah. that? <laughs> they have that. It's wrestling. It's like there's sure. a lot of different things. Yeah. So, no, but so, wrestling, real wrestling, that's objective. No, did you no, pin the person? No, I know that. No, I'm talking sure. about did you the, wrestle? the spectacle. Did you wrestle? I, didn't, I did not do any sports. Did you, no sports? No. Not even hacky you? sack? No, no. I mean, I learned how to juggle at some point. I used to play some tennis. <laughs> <laughs> Put that on your Tinder profile. Sports, I juggle. No, I swam was as a kid for a while, and I tried to play Little League, and then... Uh, I did. You, uh, were, you couldn't play Little League? I just was on like the Bad News Bears teams. We were sure. just a shitty team. Right. I mean, I could, I, I make it catch a ball. Me too. You know, and uh, I swam and uh, you know, I'm athletic, but I, I never played competitive sports. How do you know you're athletic? Because I run play? and I lift and I do things. I can hit a softball. I can catch. I play You a can hit tennis. a softball is sure. your definition of athletic? I can, sure. Uh-huh. I, I can lift sure. things. What are you talking? What are you putting me on? The, I, what, I don't Athleticism, look. I think, also involves a certain amount of uh, grace, uh, awareness. Yes, of... I have all that. I just but you not... haven't. You've never tested it. Sure, I have. I, I run a few miles. I hike up a that's hill. Not... And that I can you hit can a ball. run a few miles, so you can like I can out... swim. That's evolutionary. If you swim, couldn't do that, your can... ancestors would not have lived long enough for you to exist. Well, what would I need to do, Stephen? I mean, well, I can't. I can't throw a ball through a hoop. I can't do that. Am I out? That would I be can... athletic. Yes, that would be athletic. I can. But I can... Hand-eye coordination. I can play tennis. I can hit a okay. ball. Okay. All right, so am I good? Are you good at tennis? I'm all right. Then you're not athletic. You what have you, to be good at something. You have to be good at a sport to be called athletic. You're playing, you are playing a sport. That's not the same thing as being I athletic. Know, I don't know why this became an attack of my, like, and you're supposed to be one of the good guys. And now I'm like, now I'm a shitty person because I'm not athletic. Mm -hmm. I've always been acting all those years that you thought I was. I don't have, player. I'm not good with competition <laughs> is the problem. <laughs> I don't. I once. I, once, I don't have I the temperament a, for it. I once had a uh, a, a, a paper basket shoot off. Yeah. Like you know, you just take balls up. You know, ball up some paper and you shoot some yeah. baskets with uh, Doctor J. He was uh -huh. a guest on the old show. Yeah. And right before I I went on stage, one of my executive producers said to me, "Hey man, just prepare yourself because you know you don't get to be like Doctor J unless you're really competitive." Yeah. And I said, "Hey, just." He should prepare himself because you don't get to host one of these unless you're really competitive. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just like, I'm the kind of guy that like, you know, if in an office situation, you know, when you're playing a dumb game like that, just yeah, throwing sure. things in a garbage can, you know, there's the one guy that when he doesn't make it goes, God, fuck. Like there's a lot more things going on. Yes. About failing. Is that, that you? Yeah, a little bit. Okay. It used to be. I don't care anymore. I, you know, if I. I more I'm more prone to like throw it in if it misses I'll be like of course. <laughs> oh my god, that's so sad. Of course, I don't I deserve get, to get, get a piece of paper in a trash one, can. Can I just get I, one? Can it work out once? Once so close. Look, so you're fantasizing in closets for friends. Yes, and uh, you're, you're and I'm fantasizing in closets for myself too. Yeah. I used to play a lot of uh, magical thinking. Uh, I actually, actually, I discussed this with Conan on his podcast. So we might be double dipping on podcast, but magical thinking. Magical thinking is that I would get in a mat. I'd get into like closet, and I would go, "Okay, I wonder if I held my breath for a certain amount of time. Yeah, I could have my brother back. Oh uh, wow, stuff like that. Huh? Yeah. Well, I mean, magical thinking and is sort of 
necessary for the suspending of disbelief in order to have faith in the first place, isn't it? I mean, magical thinking in a managed way is I suppose part so. of the whole trip, I mean, isn't I don't, it? I don't perceive magical thinking and religion as, as the same thing because magical thinking, magic is trying to, and I forgot who said this, I'm quoting somebody here. Yeah. Magic is an attempt to control the Godhead. Uh-huh. Magic is a way to control God. Right, it's about will. Creation. Yeah. Faith is the is the opposite. Got it. Faith is acceptance. Yeah. So it's it's magical thinking is actually it's completely antithetical to my faith. Okay. When do you start uh, actually training as an actor? Tell me about Chicago and that scene. How did you meet? Because like, how did you get there? I didn't do any play till I was a senior in high school. In high school, yeah. I I got finally got up the gumption to audition for something, and I got a part at a local community theater. Yeah. And then did the, the the musical with my girlfriend. We were Annie Oakley and, and Frank Butler and Annie Get Your Gun. And then and then like, well, but I can't do this. I mean, I can't tell anybody that this is what I want to do. Yeah. And so then I and I also barely graduated from high school. And really? My friends, my Dungeons and Dragons friends, who were all they dragged you down. No, they were all straight A students. They all opted out. I mean, they all they all uh, was it uh, they all placed out of their exams. Uh huh. Because they they're great. They all had A's. So they didn't have to take final exams. They actually sat me down, like they did it, like each one of them took a different day. Yeah. They came over to my house, sat me down, and they ran me through, okay, everything you need to know about Trig. Here's everything you need to know about French. Here's everything you need to know. And they drilled me for hours. So you just retained it enough for the test. Vomited out the next day. I yeah. aced every one of my finals and I graduated from high school. But if I hadn't aced all of them, I would not have graduated with my class. Yeah. And so I barely graduated. And then I, I went to a, a, a good college named Hampton Sydney. A college in Virginia that was, you know, I always say it was not that hard to get into, but really hard to stay. You know, they failed a lot of people out. Yeah. But they were very rigorous once you got there. Yeah. And I learned in some ways how to write there. They had a fantastic rhetoric program, and I did plays there too. And I realized there, when I was there doing those plays, that I thought, oh, wow, wisdom is lost on those who won't act wisely. Yeah. And I'm being given a hint here by the universe because the only thing that I will show up early for and stay late for and nobody has has to ask me to do it is to work on a play. Like no one has to say you should go audition for that. Or And, and I would, even if I wasn't in it, I would run lines with anybody else. Yeah. I would, want, I would go sweep the theater just to be in the theater. Well, it's like campus. living within the fantasy land. It's like, that's where it all- I suppose so. Like just to be all in All the possibilities theater. of that Like place. even here, like you, know, like you notice, even though you take it for granted, yeah. you walk into that theater- it is a zone in itself that that is fantastic. Sacred space. Right, yes. yeah. So you must have felt that early on. I guess, not sort of consciously. I just really loved being there. All I knew was that it, it occurred to me one day that I was the first person there, the last person to leave, and I would I would do any amount of work, and I would run lines 20 times. Even if I had I would do it any number of times, and I never complained, and I always was happy to be there. And I went, I should try to do this. Yeah. I should sort of confess to sure. myself that this is what I want to do. And this was in the depths of this terrible sadness. Yeah. Sort of debilitating, almost just like a sickness that I was Did you have to go get medicine? Did you have to see a doctor? Did See, you... they thought I had tuberculosis because I'd lost so much weight. And I was so like, <laughs> I got tested for TB because they, yeah. I, they, I was, I was green. Like it was, you, you looked at me and said, that person's not well. Oh man. Kind of, kind of thin. And, um, and so then I said, well, I want to, I guess I'll try to go to a theater school. I still wanted an undergrad experience. And I'd done, I'd done well in school. I'd, my grades had improved. And so I, there was nothing to do. Hampton Sydney College, Hampton Sydney, Virginia, it's all male college, 700 students yeah. in the middle of the, you know, in like 15 minutes from Farmville. That's the yeah, yeah. town. There's nothing to do there. Right. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, 
and you were sad and skinny. I was sad, so I spent a lot of time. I did I did the work yeah. for two years, right? And then I transferred to Northwestern University to the theater program there. So that's and that's then, then it was completely different. Then then that was the beginning of my new life. Did it turn around? Did your sadness turn around? Do you remember the day? Was there no? The sadness did not turn around. No, it did no. As a matter of fact, in some ways, it was worse because I was being asked to confront it directly, because we were doing sort of method work, and and were you able to? Uh, not very well. I, I not very well. I remember my my teacher, Ann Woodworth, a wonderful teacher who I I learned so much from. Didn't even realize how much I learned from until I'd gone to try to work professionally for years. Yeah, and then I went, oh, this is what she was teaching me. Um, she saw through a lot of my bullshit yeah. and my charm and my, I was facile. I could learn lines very quickly. I could get a sense of how the scene might work, but there wasn't a lot of an emotional truth to the work that I did. And she kept on saying, but how do you feel? Yeah. And I remember blowing up at her once. Anger. Oh, blowing up with her because she wasn't buying yeah. my uh, well-constructed uh, well facsimile of human emotion for her. Mm-hmm. And she, and remember, she's saying, "Then how do you feel? How do you, how do you actually feel?" I'm like, "I feel, I feel fine, really. How do you, how do you feel?" And I remember her sitting on the edge of the stage, and me, without of out of nowhere, not knowing how it happened, me, uh, like looming over her, like a wave about to break on her, because I'm standing on stage yeah. and she's sitting on the edge, and she's not looking at me. She's sort of looking off to the side, and me going, "I don't like." yelling not even at you and you want me to yell and she just said how do you feel like that and it completely undid me did you cry yeah absolutely just like classic you know acting class as therapy which it should not be Right. You know, really gets mistaken for therapy a lot, and I—that's one of the reasons why I, I love Barry. That TV show is so brilliant, it's so good, it's, so, it's perfect in I, every I've way. I've watched it; it's, it's so perfect in every good. way, and I recognize that acting class so perfectly. But like that's that moment though, where you know, without understanding it, the relationship between sadness and anger is is very close. Sure, because anger is not really your emotion. Right. Anger is your last armor right. before you show your actual emotion. Like I felt when you just did that exercise in explanation, I felt it. Like I felt that the that because I'm a guy who lives in a certain or did in a certain amount of anger mm-hmm. out of fear of being engulfed by the sadness. Sure. Like that, like- Or if, to be judged for your feelings. Well, yeah, I- I don't be, know. For me, it was vulnerability too to be seen as these these feelings were so debilitating. But it's all you want to do is be seen, though. Really? Yes. You want to be seen, but instead you create some very close version of yourself for people to see. Yeah, uh, innately. It's not like you're sitting there going. Like, no, 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 right. no. It's just, just, it's yeah. It snaps together without Legos. That like yeah, I'm, I'm a, a version of you snaps together like Legos without yeah. you even thinking right. about it. And I'm at this place right now in my life where I'm like, I can't. I don't want to manage that shit anymore. What am I so afraid of? You know, like that. Like if I if I open that up, it will never. The crying will never stop. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> if you if you pay any attention. If you pay any attention to the world, the crying will never stop. That's right. It's true. Yes. And you know, that it just kind of locks in with the uh, yes. the sadness that's already there. Yeah. If you already have that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a daily thing, man. Yeah. Right? All right, so so, so that there, I, so I have that a bit of a breakthrough when I realize, oh, I'm I kind of realized in that moment, oh, I am which is 
obvious, of course, but you don't, I'm not looking at myself. Again, I'm shaving, looking at a cork board. I'm not really looking at the mirror. Right. And like that was one of those moments. Oh, it was one of those moments. Oh, I guess I am damaged. Right. And, and my teacher actually said, I won't teach you anymore unless you go to therapy. Oh, wow. Did you? Yeah, I did. Yeah. And help? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I took it mildly seriously. Yeah. I took, I, re, I realized, I, it, we, all it did was like open me to the idea that I got a lot of work to do. Yeah. And then, then I didn't do that work. No, you can hold on to that idea. Like, I just recently re-engaged that idea. Like, sure. within the last few weeks. I got I'm a like, lot of work to do. I got work to do. I'm going to go do it. Yep. And then I didn't do it. Oh. I didn't do it. But at least, you know, A, she kept me in her class. Have... And, and and also, I, I I became at least at least aware enough to know that I've got a lot of unresolved stuff going on. And I wonder what that is. Still? Mm, not not as much. No, no. Not as did much. The work, at that time, yeah. Did the work do itself? No. You... It 100% did not do itself. I had a nervous <laughs> breakdown when I was 29. Like, literally, like... 10 years after I don't do the work, 10 years later, I had a nervous, like completely, like I wouldn't wish this panic attack on anyone. I wouldn't wish, I wouldn't wish it on anyone. At but my 20, worst enemies, I wouldn't want to make feel the way I felt for months. At 29? 29, yeah, yeah. So a month married, one month married. How about that? How's that a wedding present for your wife? Is that the guy that she thought she married, she comes home, she's like, what did you do all day? I'm like walking tight circles around a couch. Yeah. You know? Wow. She's like, how was your day? And I'm like, you're looking at it because I was just, <laughs> if, I, if I physically kept moving, if I physically kept moving, like it wouldn't get me. Oh, do you know what I mean? From the inside. Or back here, back oh, in the yeah, peripheral the, oh, vision where oh, you yeah, can't yeah. see it. It's always there. Yeah. The worst possible thing that'll right. ever happen to oh, you. Right, right. Which must never be named. Yeah. Or yeah. ever be known. Right. You just got to stay steady, stay just, busy. Just keep, keep moving. Just yeah. keep moving. Keep moving. That was at 29. Yeah, yeah. What, where, what was your, where were you in your career? Uh, I was at Second City. I was, I was, I was a working, you know, actor. Okay, so you go to Northwestern, then you get involved with the. Uh, I get involved. I do. You know, I do the standard. I do a three-year program in two years, which was kind okay. of intense for acting. For straight acting. up acting, straight up theater major. Yep. I mean, I still have I, Northwestern. You still have a. You still get like a liberal arts education. Sure. It's not. A, yeah. It's not a conservatory, but yeah. I finished most of that stuff. And it's undergrad, so you're doing yeah. the whole thing. And I'd finished. I'd I'd finished the core curriculum at at, at Hampton. The other place, yeah. And so I came in and essentially just did a conservatory program, the equivalent thereof at Northwestern for two years. And I loved it, you yeah. know Shakespeare and Shaw and the ancient Greeks. It seems and like, like you, you know, really take it in. Yeah, I, I, I loved think, it. I think I that loved if, it. if anything, outside of whatever you didn't study in high school, the compulsion to you know really engage with uh, science fiction and fantasy kind of opened your brain, and you seemed to have the grooves laid for any of that stuff. Yeah, and also Dungeons and Dragons, role yeah. playing. Yeah, you know, but like just to, to to really connect, like you connect to poetry. I can feel it. You uh, you quote it. It means I something. I love it. I love it. even when I had no connection to uh, scripture. Right. Even when that sort of was hollow for me, then poetry stepped in to be a, a bomb. Sure. You know, in Gilead. If right. You will. Yeah. Because like when when poems open up, it's like. Oh. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a great revelation for me. Is working on sonnets. Yeah, the first thing they had us do in Shakespeare was like, okay, you got to go read a sonnet. Un- you got to read it until yeah. you understand it. Right. Like I get it. Like no, you, you don't. don't. And, you keep and then going. you read like you read it like ten times and yeah. explicate the meaning and the yeah. rhythm. And you go and suddenly and it always happens. Yeah. it's never not happened. Right. It, it opens like an egg and you yeah, see yeah. the chick inside. Right, you go, right. oh, <laughs> he's a genius. It's not just, it doesn't just rhyme. It doesn't just mean something. It means one particular thing uh-huh. that's almost behind the the, right. the the cage of those 
14 lines yeah, of iambic pentameter. And the way that, that that experience happens, you know, outside of the math, that's yeah. one of those things, like, there's a math to it, A, B, A, B. And, but it's not the math. No, it's not. Because then all of a sudden it's like, how could I have ever seen that without, like, you know, you had to do the, you had to cross the threshold somehow. Sure, sure. When in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes, I all alone beweep my outcast state and trouble deaf heaven with my bootless cries and look upon myself and curse my fate, wishing me like to one more rich in hope, featured like him, like him with friends possessed, desiring this man's art and that man's scope and what I most enjoyed contented least. Yet in these thoughts myself almost despising, haply I think on thee, and then my state, like to the lark at break of day, arising from sullen earth, sings hymns at heaven's gate. For thy sweet love remembered such wealth brings, that then I scorn to change my state with kings. Wow. That's the first one I worked on. That's a good one. It is a good one, isn't Seems it? Seems like a lot of pressure for the woman, whoever he's involved with. I don't know if it's a woman. Yeah. You it can be anyone. It can be love it can in be general. Anyone. Right. Yeah. Thou. It's, I just. Thou. Thy sweet love remembered. Yes, right. Yeah. Yeah. But that turmoil of the heart. Yeah. All, when, when there's nothing in my life, when I'm completely destitute, all I need to do is remember that you exist. Is what the, That's all I need to do. And that's a, that's a spiritual idea as well. Sure. Well, sure. that was like, Yeah. Well, thank you for that uh, beautiful uh, rendition. Yeah. Somebody so, out there has like got out there complete Shakespeare right now. It's going, <laughs> oh, did he? Oh, no. He inverted two of the lines. <laughs> Fucker. Yeah, exactly. You know what? You don't need those people. I don't need those people in my life. Because <laughs> yeah. I am those people in my life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, they're living within you. And if you're going to get trolled for not doing a sonnet properly. I'm going to do it. You're on it. <laughs> don't, don't worry. Bother. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've got an Tell inner me something troll. I don't know. Yeah. My inner troll is all over that. The comment board is full. The uh, <laughs> He's meaner than you could possibly be. So when so right after out of Northwestern, you go into the improv thing? No, I I, I started improv, improv at Northwestern. Yeah. A friend of mine uh, said, hey, do you want to go downtown and see this thing called the Herald Improv at this club in Chicago that doesn't exist anymore called Cross Currents? And it was Del Close and Sharna Halpern, and, and those people were creating this, this new long form of improvisation called the Herald. It, it already previously existed, but they turned it into like a, like a competition. So you knew Del? Yeah, I studied with Zell. Yeah, at the uh, at the very beginning, not not a lot. He, I never had like a. Some people have sort of a guru relationship with yeah. him, and I don't. I don't mean that pejoratively. I just mean that I just didn't spend enough time with him for him to become that meaningful of a figure. In, but in my so, life. but was it before? But he was the first person to teach me improv. But was that before he became sort of this? He was Buddha. No, he was already like he was at at that time. By the time I knew him. He was already very important to a lot of people. I mean, he of course he'd been a mainstay of Chicago and world improv because he was one of the early people of the second. Did city. you feel the power? You say he wasn't a guru to you. Do you, were you? How did you take him in? Just as a teacher, you didn't yeah, develop. I felt, I felt. I mean, I've, I I liked. I think I would like to have spent more time with him because, mm -hmm. especially as someone who's looking for a father figure, I think I would like to have spent more time with him. Yeah, I don't, I, but I don't hear that a lot in your story. You know, like uh, uh, talking to you, that you know, y you would assume that you would be looking for a father figure. Did you find them? No, brother figures. Mm. I, I, I found because I also lost my two brothers at the right. same time, so I found a lot of brother figures. Right. You know, Paul Danello as a brother figure, mm. John Stewart as a brother figure. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So you, you, those were deep emotional relationships. Still, 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 yeah, that's nice. And so I, 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 I fell in love with improvisation. Yeah. Then there's something about it. I saw the first, 
night I went there, there was a, a there was a there were teams, you know, improv teams, and this improv team was called Barons Barracudas. And if somebody was a Chicago improv person in the '80s, they know exactly. There was sort of a legendary group of people, yeah. amazing people on that. And the person I most admired was a guy named Dave Pasquese. And I work with Dave. Okay, so he's still there. He's an actor. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, he's still a friend of mine. But Dave, I saw Dave on stage, and I immediately went, I, "Who is that? What is his secret? What does he have inside his mind that I want to know?" Like as a performer, not like I didn't admire him as a performer, though I did. What I meant is that I would see him on stage and go. He's got a secret. I, I'm waiting for his character to reveal his secret. There was some sort of vibe I got from him that was always a little bit more that he wasn't sharing that was very interesting mm. and made everything he did seem interesting and sort of like uh, like he's just about to open a door oh, yeah. to some inner thought of yeah. his. And I admired him. In, I still do. I still kind of want to be Dave Pasquese because I, I admire improvisers so much and he's the best one I know. And so I saw him and I saw a bunch of other people in Chicago. And I did that for a couple of years. I improvised in Chicago for a couple of years while I was still at school. With a company? Uh, with a group With a group uh, I formed with some friends at Northwestern called the No Fun Mud Piranhas. Yeah. And um, Schwimmer was one of them. And uh, we, we would go downtown and perform uh -huh. at Cross Currents. And that was my first taste of professional comedy life. Yeah. And I loved it. And how'd you meet with uh, how'd you meet uh, Sedaris and those crew? Uh, when I and got Dinella. out of college, I formed a theater company for one year, which disappeared in a hail of you know blood and bones. It just didn't last. Mm -hmm. And then I traveled for a long time, and and then I came back to Chicago with not a penny. I mean, not a penny. In Where'd my you pocket. travel? Uh, all over Europe. I got a job working at a theater festival in an arts festival in Italy called the Spoleto Festival, the Festival dei Due Mondi. And I was a voce recitante. I was a reciting voice with orchestras. I did uh, Enoch Arden by Tennyson with Paolo Bordoni on the piano playing this music by Strauss. I did um, uh, Ferdinand, the Monroe Leaf story with a little chamber orchestra. Did you go to the Vatican? Uh, I, I did, but this was not a, not, this is not that part of Italy. Oh. And um, so I did that for a while. And then I just traveled around Europe just to not come home because I had no career and I had no money and so I just slept on the side of the road. This in your mid-20s? 23. Uh-huh. And then I came back when I was 20, I was still 23 and a friend of mine, I had no place to live. I had no job. I had nothing. Not not, not a dollar. Yeah. And uh, a friend of mine was the box office manager at Second City and she said, well, if you want to answer phones here, you know, I can pay you, you know, $8 an hour or whatever it was. And so I went and answered the phones with a guy named Jeff Garland. Yeah. He was one of the other phone answers. Answering the phone loudly. He would he would say, look at this. And he would pick up the thing and you'd have like 12, Second City was always sold out. There'd be yeah. like 12 lights lit up of people waiting in line. Yeah. And he would go, release, 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 release. <laughs> they would all be on hold. <laughs> and he would release all of them just to see their little lights disappear. <laughs> the power. The power. And so then I started taking classes there. Yeah. Because you could take classes for free if you worked there. Yeah. So I was a part-time worker where they still let me take classes. And yeah. I mean, you can find online, there's pictures of my first day at Second City. They take a Polaroid of you against a wall. There's yeah. my day, Amy's day, Carell's day, uh, though he was a little bit ahead of me, uh, Danello. And we were like all early, mid-20s people, not knowing what to do with our lives, kind of misfits. But Second City is is kind of a misfit junction. And then you were in the annoyance too? I did that with, uh, I I did a couple of things with Mick Napier yeah. Yeah, at I Annoyance, but um, yeah. I mostly just did Second City, and, and I, I had sort of been, Second City got bad-mouthed by the pure improv yeah, people right. in Chicago, but I found out that 
they were great. Everybody was there trying to make people laugh. And God, there was a paying audience every night. And and you could experiment all you wanted in the improv set. And then you would craft it. You know, you'd learn a little bit something about dramatic structure. Yeah. Um, to be able to make your sketches and make the scenes that we never called it sketches. We only called it scenes. Yeah. Scene work. And and I, I fell in love with the place. And and then I made my career there for the next four or five years, actually. And then you had the breakdown. Breakdown was after that. Breakdown was after I had already... Um, yeah, breakdown was toward the end of that. I got married. Yeah, I was 29. I had the breakdown. I remember I'd, I'd be... I was in such a deep panic attack all the time that I'd be backstage... You know, because you still got to do a show, still yeah, do eight shows a week. Sure. And so I'd be backstage on a couch like that, but much rattier than the yeah. couch in here. And I'd be curled up in a ball, just lying on there with my like face kind of tucked in the corner of the couch so I didn't have to talk to anybody. Just free-floating anxiety or like what was it? Mm, I don't know. My skin was on fire. I don't know how to describe it. Yeah. It, it's. I think the, I think the, Oof. I think what's horrible about panic attacks and again, God help me, this is the only really one I've ever had is that it after a while it didn't become about anything right it was just itself it was just on you like dread a, a dread like existential dread yeah, never be happy again yeah. uh, and why would you ever have been happy and and um and nothing you ever want will ever come to pass and every choice you've ever made is the wrong one like a terrible debilitating a truly mental illness how'd you get through it well i started off with some xanax but i did that for a week yeah and i said I could feel that the gears were still spinning, and what the what Xanax had done made them go slow. No, it it had thrown a a a insulated blanket over the gearbox, so I couldn't hear them anymore. Mm -hmm. But I could sure still smell that smoke. Yeah, 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 coming out of that gearbox. So I stopped, and then I mean, it came on me again like an ant. It was a hard thing to go off to, right? Because I knew it would come back really hard, and. The, what really got over it was that I did it for months and months and months. I'd, again, I'd be b- backstage. I'd, yeah. I'd hear my cue to go on stage coming up, and I would kind of uncurl right. like uh, like the alien at the end of Alien, how yeah. it sta- stashed itself in the side of the uh, escape pod with Sigourney yeah. Weaver, and it kind of uncurls itself and comes out. I would do that. I would untangle my limbs and go on stage, and I'd feel fine on stage. That's what, yeah, of course. And that, that's, that, that is the moment where you realize this is the best thing I do in my life. Thank God for this is where you're like, I like it happened to me late in life where I'd walk out on stage before the show yeah, just to feel it. And I'll be like, I know what this is. Mm-hmm. I know what happens here. It actually scared me a little bit though. Yeah. Because I, I thought, oh, if I'm not on stage, like I'm helpless in a way. Yeah. And it made it made made stains feel like a drug to me a little bit. What's wrong with that? Well, <laughs> there are times when you're not on stage is the problem. And then one morning I woke up and the feeling was gone. A and gift. I, and I couldn't understand why until I realized, oh, this is the first day of rehearsals for the new show. Mm. And and what that means at Second City is you're not going in to do material. You're going in to create material and rehearse it as you create it. You're basically improvising all day long for months uh, with the other cast living members. Living in the present constantly in the moment of yeah, creation right. eight hours a day right. you know five days a week and then you're still doing the shows at night it's yeah. very taxing then you slowly take that material and you switch out and the, it never that, that never went away i mean that never came back no nope, that was it that that i i hadn't even done it yet i just knew i had the opportunity that day to improvise all day long yeah and the feeling and the the deep panic and the skin on fire went away and i thought to myself well i i guess i'm doing the right thing 
for a living because it's going to save my life. But at some point, is this like now? This is where I got to fast forward because you got a day to have. Now, at some point, though, uh, is that the role that faith began to play in your life a bit? Did that like faith it- happened before that? Faith happened before that. I was just walking down the street in Chicago and someone summoned me a Gideon handed me a Gideon Bible. Handed me a New Testament proverb from Psalms, and that's when it came back. And I just opened it up, and there was a little, there's a little thing in the front of it, a little, the table of contents in the in the little pocket Bible they gave me, just had things to thinking about this. Try this scripture, and it just said anxiety, and so I opened up. Uh, it said, "Go to Matthew chapter five, and that's the Sermon on the Mount." And I read the sermon, and 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 it, I was suddenly struck with the idea that. You know the phrase like it spoke to me. Yeah, it really didn't feel like I was reading. It felt like it was literally speaking off the page. There was no effort at all. And what's great about the New Testament is that even when I had no faith at all, the words of Christ always had a very special feel. Not not like and then he went to right. you know yeah. Capernaum and right. healed the none of that. Literally what he says. Yeah, and sermon is that is that chapter after chapter of just Christ Jesus talking. talking and giving you advice. So yeah. I say to you, do not worry. Yeah. For who among you by worrying can change a hair on his head or add a cubit to the span of his life? Don't. Stop. <laughs> and it changed my life. And it, it, at, a, at a moment of revelation there, and I've never been the same. Now, since we have this time, since I am apparently didn't pace myself properly. Yeah, I'm sure I, I threw logs on the railroad this is, tracks. But this was interview. your trick. It is. Why you were gonna dance around you? I just rope a dope, baby. I know, I man. Just I, that's you. what I figured would happen. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I don't feel like that. A couple questions, starting with you know with politics, like that uh, in the two thousand and six um, the dinner, the oh, correspondence, the correspondence dinner. Yes, like that was to me. Like I thought that was a phenomenally ballsy, crazy, you know, insanely um, beautiful thing that happened. But uh, but a good deal of the culture didn't receive it that way uh, in terms of like, you know, no. they, they misunderstood that. And even the part of the culture that actually did receive it with its intention didn't do so for a couple of days because who was watching C-SPAN back then? And these and these these dinners weren't necessarily cultural events the way that they have have become now, especially since the. Well, you've, I think you've frightened all Republican presidents from here forward Maybe. for ever doing it, which is fine. For but showing YouTube up. was brand new at the time. Right. And it was one of the first, that dinner was, really was sort of received by people once they saw it on YouTube. When you were doing it, did you know what was happening? Um, did you know that like, you know, that you, what, I guess my question is, were you, when you, when you went up there as that character, were you just confident in your jokes or did you realize? I was confident in the jokes, yeah. But did you realize that, it, you, you know, that it immediately, the vulnerability of that particular president and and the people that that uh, no. that knew him that no. it was going to take the turn it did. No, I did not. Well, first of all, as you um you know, as you can attest to, if things aren't properly miked, the people watching on TV at home don't know what the room's like at all. Yeah, and the room actually wasn't as dead as it seems like on, sure. on air because the, there's one mic and it was pointed at my face, mm-hmm. and so it had to be a giant laugh for you to hear it at all. Right. Um, there were some good laughs in oh, there good. now, but there were also some del- delightful silences. Right, very respectful silences <laughs> at various <laughs> yeah, times, yeah. and I could tell that the the man himself on my right was not enjoying it. Oh yeah, you felt I, that. Well, I only I only looked at him once or twice, yeah. the whole thing, and I and I thought to myself, I'm going nowhere near that man because I actually had one joke that I cut. Yeah, which was oh, uh, it was um, this man because he recently had been criticized for giving away medals of freedom. Yeah, to people like George Tennant. Yeah, 
uh, people who had completely shanked uh, the Iraq war were getting right. med- medals of freedom as they were being ushered out the door because they were such disasters. Yeah. And I said, this man gives up med- medals of freedom like they're candy. No one ever gives him anything. Yeah. Well, that ends tonight. And I gave him a certificate. I had a certificate of presidency. Yeah. We made it look like something you get at the learning annex. Yeah. You know, fancy, but cheap. Mm. And it was a certificate of presidency. And it said, this certificate indicates that I, Stephen Colbert, and I wrote it all in with my left hand, so yeah. my child did, Stephen Colbert acknowledges that George W. Bush is president of the United States. And I dated it, and I signed it and everything, and it was going to be like, give this to your mom, put it up yeah. on the fridge, you right. know? Here's a little something for your mom. So anyway, I, I loved that. I, I mean, I, listen, I could tell that there were some things that there was, yeah. there was like a, a just a whiff of brimstone sure. in the room, yeah. but I didn't realize that it was going to turn into anything. Right. I, I I didn't really care how the people on the dais responded. Of course, I'm making jokes about them, yeah. or even the front row, like who were all people whose jobs depended on the people on the dais. Right. But it was playing pretty well to the back of the all room, right. well, and it wasn't until the next day that I realized that it had turned into a thing. Yeah, yeah. As my 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 executive producer Tom Purcell said, "Look, we were throwing bottles of grape knee high, albeit." With a burning rag in the neck. Yeah. We weren't really throwing Molotov cocktails. <laughs> right. We were just pretending. Right. And he goes, what we didn't know was that the room was soaked with gasoline. <laughs> the room was the, was on fire, right. you know, by itself. So I was there to make, I was hoping the president would laugh. Really? Yeah, I know. I even that wrote was... him a letter saying like, I hope you enjoyed it. I mean, maybe you didn't, Did but I was not. Did he get? I don't know. I, don't, oh, yeah. I mean, legally, I think he has to receive so, it. So now- like because you know the evolution of the show and how it started, the show you're on now, yeah, yeah, you know, kind of was finding your footing. And yeah, then no idea, Trump, and they, right? And Publicly, Trump, not having any idea is what we did. And Trump, like as as awful as it is, yep, you know, he you know he is. People rely on you mm-hmm. to to be a foil to this. Mm-hmm. I rely and, on, as I said before, I rely on 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 going to do it, so I I can express how I feel about it. You know. So how do you feel on a day-to-day basis? Are you terrified? Are you uh, angry? Because I know that I, like, especially lately, uh, I'm becoming a bit hopeless. Oh. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not hopeless because we're entering into a new cycle. Mm-hmm. You know, for the last two years, there really has been no story. I mean, there have been individual tragedies or individual triumphs happening that in this sort of the national conversation. I don't want to say news, but like what people are talking about, because I don't do news, but I do do what people are talking about. Mm-hmm. And and I just said do do. Yeah. And but that's going to change now because we're going into the a new presidential campaign, and he will at cer- at a certain point. The president will only be fifty percent of what people are talking about. Right, they'll be talking about his competition. You know, all in reference. You think to he's going to let that happen? Uh, I don't <laughs> think he has a choice. I actually uh-huh. think there's one nice thing about our constitutional democracy is that the the the, the necessity of the election will have to will balance out. And you think the, the democracy is going to hold up? Yeah, sure, I do. I don't think it'll disappear in our lifetime. Okay, I mean, obviously it can. Yeah, it can. But I think that the 2018 elections show you that people do give a shit. And also, you know, that people are capable of shock and change, and that actually, I was pretty depressed before the 2018 election. Yeah, and then, and then once it, when it actually happened, I went, "Oh, this will be interesting. There'll be some level of pushback and change here." And that's always hopeful. Any amount of change, like if you if you can't have any change at all, yeah, that's when that's when things get hopeless. And there's clearly change is possible. Well, that's good. I, I'm I'm I, I'm glad to hear you think that. And a lot of people listen to you. I, there, I just read some article about this extensive survey 
about when you and John left the airwaves that it, that voting in a certain age group went down that you know even even if you weren't informing them you were making them aware enough that they had to vote oh you know God. yeah so oh know God. that you carry that okay good you make good sure you know. make you. sure you get them out to vote do you know how much John and I used to talk about like we're not here to actuate the youth vote really because people people want you to be an ad people want you to be an activist if you talk about politics, they can't imagine you would talk about it and not be an activist, not want to be a player. Like when we did our sure. rally on yeah. the mall, it couldn't. no one could conceive that we could possibly want to talk about politics without wanting to be political players. But you, yeah, it was, it's, it's tricky. Yeah, we absolutely not at all. As I said to John, like, you know, as it says at the end, near the end of the Lord of the Rings, when they're trying to figure out what to do, yeah. you know, how to how to destroy Sauron. Gandalf says it hasn't entered into Sauron's like wildest dreams that we would want to destroy the ring. They think we want to use it. I yeah. just said, like, why do they think we want to be political players? Yeah. All, we're, all we do is make fun of these people. Well, you kind of know you are. No, I don't know that I am. Mm. I, well, I, if I was, then, then if I was a political player, Donald Trump would not be president. Well, I mean, I, I'm just saying that, you know, people listen to you and people are scared. No, you can say that you're in... People can say that you influence them. Yeah. And that's fine. Yeah. People's, uh, I've said this before, if people say that I influence them, yeah. but that's entirely their judgment. My intention is to do the jokes. Okay. And and so if your intention yeah. is to do that, then you're not a political player. Right. People can say you talk about politics. People can say you influence how they think about politics. But your intention has to be to play with this thing, to control or to change. Right. And your intention is everything. People's interpretation is none of my damn business. Okay. I'll, 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 I'll let that be. <laughs> you're, you're, you're nothing if not a gracious host. Thanks for talking to me, pal. Oh, I really enjoyed it. We Good. never even got into our history. It's all right. That's all right. I mean, I, Air America, rise up! Yeah, it's, is it back? Is <laughs> yes. it back? Can I get the job right now? Back? Just today. Can I just get today. the job this back? This is Air America. Right. I got to leave here and go over to Maddow Studio, and then and then Al Franken's. <laughs> we did all right. All right. How did you feel about it? I, I did I get anything it. new? Yeah, you did actually. Oh, good. You got some new stuff. I mean, I, I, because I, my publicist, yeah. Carrie Bialik, the great Carrie Bialik, yeah. who's actually a manager now. She um she said uh, I'll listen and you know I always enjoy it if you've said something you haven't said before yeah and I know for a fact I'm walk out the door she goes oh you never said that thing about the thing oh like, good so you got a few new things well in there. thanks buddy thanks for talking thank you bye wow that was uh we got in it right just like just off and running I have no instrument me and Johnny Flynn played some guitar a couple of uh, twelve strings. Hung out for, you know, half hour or so in between takes. Did some blues. Did some talking. We've been talking a lot about music, man. A lot about music. It's great. It's great. All kinds of new things going into my head. New ways of looking at things. Boomer lives! <laughs> <laughs>